Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Tom Marshburn, an astronaut for NASA, and we discuss leadership lessons learned in space, Tom's toughest moments aboard the International Space Station, and the technology that will one day get humanity to Mars. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So I was just curious, how did you develop this sort of discipline and this ability to deal with difficult situations? So the role of the astronaut starts when you're selected and they try to select people who have been through this before. So if I back even before I became an astronaut, I would say it really started, I would say it started in medical school, but because that's very unique stresses, you know, they start you off of getting, getting you around a dead body, you know, in an anatomy lab that for some people can be really stressful, but the real stress hits when you start taking care of patients. But even before then, there's an academic stress, you know, getting ready with exams, that sort of thing, pretty high pressure stuff. So I think it's, it's exposure kind of inviting it, inviting the stressful situation, which you don't have a choice. If you want to go to med school, you're, you're going to take those courses. And in the med school, you're going to, you know, uh, be under the gun. For me personally, when I came to a situation where I had to make decisions based on limited information that really had affected outcomes in people's lives, et cetera, again, uh, you, you do the best, you prepare as best you can, but you, you just have to expose yourself to it. I don't think there's any way to prep for it other than, uh, Academically, certainly prep yourself for it and then rely on that and do the best you can. It was interesting as an emergency resident, I trained in Ohio and we had a life flight program. So we were one year out of med school. We just finished our internship and we would be on call to fly in a helicopter and we could be on that. We could land right in the middle of a car wreck scene where they couldn't extricate people out of the car as fast as we go by helicopter. So uh, just this, you know, really kind of disaster war zone kind of thing you just suddenly descend into that was probably the hardest time i think for myself and my colleagues to, to kind of get over and of course you come in with a lot of hubris and the next day it's like yeah this happened no big deal but you lose a lot of sleep uh extremely uh challenging time to get through then being kind to yourself knowing you you did the best that you can having people support you that are around you, your colleagues, your attendings, they all know what it's like to start out. There's all the protections they can, they can possibly provide for the patient themselves, but, but still uh, there's, there's going to be some bad outcomes. It's inevitable. And so um, making sure your social structure around you can help protect you um, when the inevitable bad outcome happens. As you've heard it said that the uh, the pathway to success is paved with failures and uh, accepting that and you fail as fast as you can because it's going to happen and then learn from it. So uh, the psychological protection around you when that happens, I think, is, is extremely important. So uh, and, and being good to yourself to take some time off uh, as needed uh, give yourself a break in between times. Still enough pressure on yourself to really learn from the situation uh, as you get ready for the next one. But it's tough. Yeah. Now, I got a lot of my discipline, like in hindsight, I look at it from a couple major events. Well, the first one was my dad was in the Air Force, so mm -hmm. he raised us like that. So I got a little bit there. I got hit by a car, had to learn how to walk again when I was like 12. Wow. And so that was like a really difficult moment. Sure. And then, 
you know, I got to hold my mom's hand as she passed away. And that was a difficult moment too. Yeah. So yeah. whenever I look at like business things, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Somebody not yeah. doing a deal or something not going right in the business world. That's nothing compared to this other stuff. Did you have any sort of big moments or were your parents very disciplined people? Anything in your childhood? I had a gilded childhood, not from a money standpoint, but a very loving, close family in the last of seven. Loving parents, wonderful memories, challenging growing up with six siblings, but I learned tons from them. And I am who I am today because of them, I would say, maybe even more than my parents. So uh, I guess day by day, living with them is what prepared me for life. Their academics were a, were a, um, a priority. Uh, they didn't put pressure on us, but the expectation is that you would work at your best. And that was the most important thing that you could do in your childhood. But just a wonderful time. But no, you know, I didn't have friends, family pass away. Now, when I was just as a sideline, when I was in space in 2013, my mom died. That was quite challenging. My education in medicine and the knowledge that she'd been ill ahead of time really helped with that a lot. But again, you know, my family kind of coming around and helping with that. But no, it was, I think for me, it was really kind of pressure on myself to achieve. That was the uh, the pressure that kind of kind of formed me. And that, that can be, that can be both bad and good. That can go awry if you, like I say, if you don't stop and take care of yourself a little bit, try to be well-rounded, especially. I was always involved uh, in some kind of a sport, some kind of athletics, just something blow off steam. Uh, I think it's extremely important to do that. I don't think I'm answering your question, but. Oh, uh, yes, you are. Yeah. I like people, you know, yeah. I, I like different types of people and to figure out like, I will say it, I, I'm sure you're humble, but you're a great person. I mean, it's insane. Some of the things that you've done, you become a doctor, then you become an astronaut. And one of the things I do want to know that you sort of brought up a minute ago or, or a couple of times is taking a break. How do you take a break when you're in space? Oh, when you're in space? Not as easy as on the ground. The advantage you have in space is that everyone is there for accomplishing the mission. You have a lot of people supporting you in space. You have mission control, hundreds of people on the ground monitoring everything you do. So that helps. But by the same token, at no moment are you really off. I found it kind of hard. I love to read a book. And it's hard to read a book because it's, you know, you're in space. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be reading a book. Maybe I should be cleaning something. And there's, you know, we have multiple caution warning messages, you know, emergencies or warnings come up. And so that can happen any moment. So you have to be ready to just jump. Even when you're asleep, you have to be ready to throw something on and get out right away to start taking care of something. So the real way I find to relax in space, there are some quiet moments. Yes, you can read a book, but it's to talk to my crewmates. Um, this last mission was wonderful. I had the best crew I've ever flown with. All of them were people that were great to just bounce things off of. And to uh, kind of open up and say, hey, I, I don't think this went very well, or I did great with this. And then they either they come back and uh, help you get through the tough time, or it you know, doubles the joy if, if things have gone well. And uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful crew to work with. And it's the people. And really, the thing you remember the most from a space flight is the people. I tried uh, during a flight. I mean, it certainly is wonderful to look out a window. We don't have extended periods of time where we can do that. But you capture every moment you can. And I made it a point to look out the window with one of my crewmates for as long as we could, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, at least once during the mission with each crewmate. And that's what you remember because they're going, oh, wow, look at that. Oh, I know about this. Really? What's going on over here in this part of the world? Why does it look like that? But mostly just reflecting back on each other, what you're seeing, because it's just so, so remarkable. And that really doubles your joy. And that was a great way to spend time as well. And you've been up a couple times, right? 
Yeah, I just finished my third flight. Yeah, too long duration. And my first flight was uh, six months. And my first flight was 16 days on the shuttle. And that was all to the International Space Station? Right, right. We were supplying the shuttle on that shuttle flight. I did three spacewalks to kind of help build it, build it out. We were one of the last to build, uh, add something to the space station. And then the other two flew or flew on a Soyuz up there to conduct the experiments, live and work and actually utilize the space station. And my last flight was up on the SpaceX Dragon to do the same. Were you comfortable with the SpaceX Dragon it being like a newer rocket? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing really ultimately or inherently safe in sticking yourself on top of a, right. of a ICBM or the equivalent of one. But they've launched so many satellites into space. Why, whereas they haven't been around for a long time, but they've done so much of that and it has such a good success rate. We have full confidence in, in that vehicle to get us up there and in our capsule to keep us alive. And we knew the engineers, the, their dedication to doing the right thing, having a successful mission, pulling it off, but still doing it as safely as possible. Something inherently dangerous as safely as possible. The Soyuz has the best safety record because they've just been doing it since the 70s and early 80s. But yeah, felt the same with SpaceX as it did with Soyuz for sure in terms of safety. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about that over here. And I was like, well, I guess the more, more serious question would be, is there specific data or you have a team? But you kind of answered it. There's obviously teams at NASA. You're getting to meet these mm-hmm. people. You, when you get to meet somebody in person and spend some time with them, you really get to understand who they are. And that can provide you a whole lot of safety. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, the trainers are just a blessing. They, they share your enthusiasm for space flight. They don't all want to go into space, but they share the enthusiasm and it, it just bleeds into their work. They just, they're totally dedicated, committed. They got PhD level, if not actual PhDs, but PhD level information, uh, knowledge about the system that they train you on. And uh, Russians as well, are absolutely dedicated to making sure you're successful. It's, it's really wonderful experience. And then of all the three missions that you've been on, what was the most difficult situation that you faced? The most difficult situation that I've faced, I, I think it's it's uh, probably preparing for a spacewalk. And the reason why I say that is that's the biggest unknown. Uh, it's a question of whether the hardware is going to cooperate with what you want to do. It's one of the more dangerous things that we do. Uh, it's also an opportunity to mess up in a spectacular fashion in front of everyone. It's it's critical critical for continuing your career. You want to be want it to be good. So that's leading up to that and that's that's just kind of the expected uh mindset going into it there there have been some days when uh things don't go right and uh maybe i made a mistake or hardware failed on me and that's when you, you gather your crewmates around and you just kind of recover and, and move on so uh, space is really complicated so things are going to go wrong as a veteran now space flyer one of the most important lessons i had to learn was Fine, it happened. You learn from it. You got half a second to get back in the saddle and keep going because you have to keep going. And learning how to do that, it's quite a challenge, but uh, absolutely necessary. That has been one of the more interesting parts. I'm I'm 34. I've got a wife. I've got a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and then one that'll be here like this week. And wow, so you you know the ultimate stress. <laughs> the, 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 the stress that comes with, I tell you, it's, it's a real thing, you know, when you, especially when the first one comes along, how are we going to do this? And you don't know, but you do, you do it. Oh yeah. How many yeah. do you have? 
Just one, just the one. Just one? Yeah. Yeah. It really is the ultimate life moment, right? You, you think you've been through it all and then you get married and then you think you've been through it all and then you have a child and then you go, okay, no, life, you know, adulthood starts now. <laughs> yeah, you slowly start to look around and realize there's like no one to help. Like you got to do it. Yep. So the ISS, it's going to be retired in like 10 years. And what's going to replace it? Well, the goal is, NASA's goal is to hand it over to uh, commercial entities. That's been the goal for a while to make use of uh, low Earth orbit in a commercial sense. So NASA can move into more of the exploration, moon and Mars part of space flight. So that that would be the goal. And we're, we're taking steps in that direction. We had the first private astronaut mission come up on our, uh, for, and they were up for about, uh, I think, 16 days it was, while we were on orbit. It was really fascinating have, having four more uh, astronauts on board with this. We had a good time together, worked really hard, learned a lot. But now there's an explosion of other companies. Some will utilize the space station. Some uh, will probably choose not to. They're going to build their own space station. I think that is the ultimate goal. It would be hard to deorbit that thing. But the infrastructure is still strong. There are some things that have to be upgraded, like the solar panels and you know, the semiconductors on those will wear out over time to get micrometeorite hits on the solar array. So that's being upgraded. But overall, when I'm living up there, it's a beautiful space station. It's an incredible capability for science and Earth observations, astronomy. So I um, really hope that it's successful and it doesn't doesn't go away, even in 2030, which is, is what NASA's plan is for continuing to work and be involved with it. And then many countries contributed to that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of international partners. The continual presence of in space of humans from uh, U.S. and Russia has been since the year 2000. We've had Canadian and Japanese, and then we talk about our European partners, which is you know multiple European nations. Uh, I was up there with a German astronaut, uh, a French one had just come home just prior to our my crewmate Matthias Marr arriving from Germany. So we get all kinds of yeah, all countries up there. And who's deciding these experiments that you run? I looked at your list on the press release site of all the different things you were doing, they varied greatly. They, there wasn't a common theme, at least that I could pick up. Like who decides what you do up there? Well, they, uh, NASA and the partner agencies look at all comers. There's a filter there. First of all, it's, there's obviously, might be obvious that there's limitations in power. You can't draw too much power than the station can provide. There's weight, uh, volume considerations. There's safety considerations. Don't want a lot of broken glass floating around, that sort of thing and for astronauts or people from the ground to be able to run it. So all of that's looked at by boards that evaluate the experiments that are coming in. After that happens, I think the, the bandwidth is, or, um, the, the capability or the bottleneck of getting that experiment up into space is the launch capability and the astronaut time to perform it. So um, I'm not aware of any other hierarchy that's used in order to get things done. There might be some really special interest things like the twin study you know, Scott and Mark Kelly, uh, a few other things. There are certainly the uh, alpha magnetic spectrometer, which is out there. That was a dedicated shuttle flight to bring that up and attach it to the outside of the space station. So there's there's a lot of big science things that are going on up there. But boy, that's a lot of fun to be surrounded by all of that all the time. <laughs> How do you get selected for that? To uh, do the science or to be an astronaut? Both, I guess. Mostly the astronaut. <laughs> okay, to, uh, to be an astronaut... I, I'm not quite sure because <laughs> I've never been on a selection board. From what I can tell, they need somebody with a technical degree. An advanced technical degree helps. 
but they like people with a broad experience. They like people who are extremely curious, who have put themselves in risky situations with a calculated risk, not like, you know, uh, drive dangerously or bungee jump, but to, to actually something that requires some effort and, a, and real calculated risk. Flying is typical of a hobby or a profession for astronauts, but not by any means is that uh, is it exclusively for pilots. There are a lot of non-pilots that become astronauts. And so you, when you first apply, you fill out a form. If you were going to work for the post office or the astronaut office, it's the same form. Now for the astronaut office, they had a quick health form. Did you have any major diseases? Is your eyesight going to pass the limits that they've got? That kind of thing. And then you send in references and then they look at your references. So you, you've put in your application and about a month or two later, you might hear from a college professor. who says, hey, they just sent me this. Let me go, that's great. That means I've gotten this far. And then you might get a call months after that that says, we want to give you an interview. And so you come in. I think it's about a 45-minute interview. That's it. It's just one astronaut candidate that's uh, interviewing with about 10 people. And they're usually constructed into a T, the two tables into a T, and you're in the armpit of the T. So you're surrounded 270 degrees by people evaluating you. Uh, it's deliberate to do that just to see how do you handle yourself in, in public. So that's a big determinant. Are you, are you somebody that's easy to talk to? And typically the interview will start with, so starting with high school, tell us about yourself. And it's completely open-ended. And you just start talking, and then they'll start picking off things. Go, oh, you did you did what? You worked in Yosemite, uh, you know, bagging grizzly bears for a while there? You know, there's kind of these interesting things that are sidelined. They don't necessarily want to know about what your PhD was about, but they want to know about all the other stuff you've done. Because they can probably figure out what you did for your PhD. They could read your articles, for instance. And then if you've done well in that, past that, then you're called back again for about a week of medical tests. And that's when they poke and probe and uh, look at every orifice and, and really put you through the, through the ringer to see if you're medically qualified. And if you pass that, then they do a Defense Department background check. Sometimes you don't know they're doing it, but sometimes I, I got a call from a neighbor and then a childhood friend of mine said, somebody from the government was asking about you. And then that's really exciting because you know you've gotten that far. And then finally, if you pass that, then you get the phone call that uh, invites you to join the Corps. That is amazing. Did you have to relocate and move somewhere different? No, I was. I started off as a NASA flight surgeon. <clears throat> I was an ER doc and then moved to Houston. I was a member of a, of a new program where they're training outside doctors to become NASA flight surgeons, surgeons to take care of astronauts and pilots. So I came uh, here and had been here. I got to know a lot of astronauts through that. And I'd been a flight surgeon for 10 years before I finally, and four applications before I got into the astronaut corps. And when you say flight surgeon, is that like, we call it in Florida, I think, bay flight? Is that where you're doing surgery on the helicopter when you come down into the crash scene? Is that what that is? No, no, that's a different thing. <clears throat> flight surgeon is more of a military term. Started in World War One when they realized they were losing more pilots due to illness than they were to actually aircraft getting shot down. So they, it's a specialty for a physician that actually draws from sort of a family practice or emergency medicine background, it, whatever's going on with the pilot, you help them fix it. And they're pretty or extremely healthy people anyway. But, you know, a stuffed up nose could bring somebody down. So you have to know what the implications are for any illness. Part of the training is to fly with the pilots. And so flight surgeons typically have flight experience or they get experience in the cockpit uh, in all kinds of airframes. So that's the uh, that's what a flight surgeon does. But no, they do not typically do surgery in flight. Yeah. But I did uh, a little bit of that, uh, more like anesthesia in flight. I, had, I did some surgery too in life flight, but that was part of being an ER doc. 
Very cool. Very cool. As you're talking about this, it's bringing up memories. Like on Friday nights, my stepmom would, she'd be on radio for like the local ambulances and stuff and the stuff I would hear and then she would spit it back. It just gave me a ton of respect for her because I was like, man, this person knows so much and is doing all these calculations. And I thought it was such a, such a cool experience. But those trauma situations, they're like very specific things. I don't meet people like too often because I'm not in the field that get to experience it just because I'm adjacent, you know, because of my brother and stepmom. So like when I do get to meet people like that, I'm like, ah, oh, I know how cool you are under pressure. <laughs> well, it's, it's something in it because it's, it's so emotionally, can be emotionally traumatic and chaotic with everything going on, not to mention what you're seeing, you know, blood and guts and that kind of thing. So they work really hard to provide a lot of structure. This is what you do in every trauma case, no matter what. And since I've been in training and what they do today, they even have a little podium. Somebody behind the podium, it's probably not a physician, it's probably a, a nurse that's uh, typically that's done this a lot. Who is the quarterback? Just calling, you're doing that, you're doing that, don't forget that, and watching to make sure everything gets done. And that's really the way to run a trauma. Oh yeah. Uh, a trauma code especially, yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's definitely interesting. It's uh, it tells you a lot about yourself too. Like if you're the one that when the chaos emerges, if your instinct is to be calm, I don't think you really train for that. I think some people just have that. I don't know. You might be able to, but yeah, there's there's some training of a colleague of mine, Anne McLean. She said something I think is a wonderful little mantra to go by. And what I'm referring to is when you do a spacewalk, it's kind of the same thing as a visual, visually chaotic in the sense that you come out the hatch and then suddenly you're in open space and you're 250 miles above the earth and you've never experienced that. We can't train that at all. You can train a lot of the other aspects of spacewalks, but not that. And but I think it's true for your first trauma code or anything that is uh, stressful to say, keep your world small. Do the best you can to block out everything else. What is the one thing I got to do right now? And on a spacewalk, what you got to do is just, all you got to do is hold on. Make sure you got your tether there so you're not going to go float off and just hold on. That's your job number one. Job number two is maybe start moving around a little bit and that, that could take a couple minutes. And then, you know, you just slowly increase and before you know it in a few minutes, you're going, okay, now I'm doing the full suite of things I was trained to do out here. It's daunting, so keep your world small starting out. Does it take you several months to get your muscle back after you get back to Earth? We actually, our muscle tone is pretty good when we get back because we train so hard in flight. Your listeners probably know that we we would be like jellyfish if we did not do all of the resistive exercise up there and the cardiovascular exercise that we do. So we spend about two and a half hours every single day up there exercising in order to make sure that doesn't happen. Being in zero G is, uh, causes a lot of atrophy. It's like it's, it's even less exercise than, say, lying in bed in an ICU because you, there's no stress on your body at all. There's no gravity pulling on it. So we work out pretty hard. And so when we get back, I both flights came back with more lean mass than I had when I left. Some people lose a little lean, but uh, we've, we've been able to keep it up. And that's important because our bones are, stay pretty strong. We might lose a little bone. If we didn't work out, we'd lose a lot of bone. Horrible osteoporosis if you did not do that exercise. But some muscles, like neck muscles, small muscles, muscles in the lower back can get kind of weak. So we've got some specialists on the ground. And I've just come out of a six-week program of especially stretching and, and mobility and activation to get kind of everything balanced again. So we can get back to the exercise regimen that we were doing pre-flight. And I would say from a cardiovascular standpoint, it could take three months to get back to that point, uh, maybe two months. From a strength standpoint, for me, mostly because of stretching and making sure I was limber, that took about six to eight weeks to get back to that. 
So how do you think about going to Mars, right? Like as people, what type of considerations do we have for our physical bodies to make it on a trip to Mars? Well, one of the wonders of the what we've done so far in, in space flight, especially on the space station, is find out we can do that. We need to provide the exercise capability. That's that's absolutely paramount. And so the the biggest challenge is going to be, some would say radiation is going to be a big problem. We I got the equivalent of about three chest X-rays per day while I was up there. So we're constantly monitored. We have a radiation badge. We're radiation workers. We get more in a mission than than terrestrial, you know, nuclear reactor workers get in an entire career. So they're they're watching us very closely to see what happens with that uh, to our bodies. And so far, nothing's really stuck out as as being a problem for us. I guess people are thinking about cancer and that sort of thing. And we, as far as we know, that hasn't happened. But once you get out of the Earth's geomagnetosphere, you're going to be hitting getting a lot more radiation. How much still to be determined? What the effect of the body is still to be determined. But that's a, that's a, something to be thinking about. For me, I think the I would suggest that the psychological aspects of being with three, I don't know, three, six, maybe 10 people going to Mars, being cut off from the rest of the Earth absolutely because you can't even talk to them real time. The, the light signal traveling back and forth is gonna take too long for us to have a conversation for anybody like we are right now to have a conversation. <clears throat> so it's really ultimate isolation. And once you get far enough from the Earth, it's a blue dot. You don't have the joy of looking at your home planet anymore. And for a long time, for months, you would just have a blue dot and a red dot and you're traveling in between them. So all of those psychological benefits of being in low Earth orbit, we're not going to have. So I think that could end up being the, the biggest challenge. But as far as bone and muscle goes, and as far as we can tell for other medical problems, we've, we've solved a lot of those, or at least have a solution if we haven't solved them. So the technology for blocking radiation while in low Earth orbit, they have some, it's medium good. It's obviously not perfect because you're getting tons of radiation. But like if we were to talk about no technology, like just 100% exposure to radiation that's there. So I guess like full exposure and no exposure was the spectrum, right? Where are we currently at? Like what type of technology is there helping us? The technology is such that you've, you've got to have something kind of massive in the way. And probably the lightest of those massive things is water or polypropylene. I, th- I think it's polypropylene, but we do have these bricks that we've lined some of our sleep quarters with. The aluminum shielding goes away uh, to doing that, but some of your heavier ions come in, will scatter and get, give you neutrons and, and secondary particles that then hit your body. We are constantly, we've got multiple sensors around the space station, sensors on our body. We're evaluated, uh, the outside environment's being evaluated just to fully understand what the space radiation environment is like. So that's uh, where we are right now. I think what will be interesting, I think the technology and the answer will be getting to Mars, if that's what we're talking about, as fast as possible to reduce the exposure. Having a part of the spacecraft have a lot of water or a, a slush, if you have a nuclear reactor, maybe you have a slush, so that we can live and work in space in this big cabin, but then if there's a solar flare that's directed right at us, that could maybe kill us right away. We could get inside that, that safe haven and may have to spend a week or two in there until it, it passes. Um, but that's kind of where we're headed with that. I don't know of, of any other, and that's that's been the technology for a while. I don't know if we've had any other great advancements from that. Do we currently have any nuclear reactors operating in space? No. Okay. Well, we have the, the small pellets that are, continue to make their Martian rovers go and some of our deep space probes. So yes, those are our pellets that are continuing to 
to keep them warm, keep them operating, but not in any of the spacecraft that we were flying human beings in. Are we using it for thrust at all or just that warmth? Well, it's just in those probes and no, that's not being used for thrust. The innovations in thrust, you know, typically we've been using chemical propulsion, but the ion engines have been new. And those are uh, relatively new. I mean, in the last 20 years, they provide a low thrust over a long period of time and keep things going. So that's been been innovative and, and really wonderful for making sure we can have smaller engines and still go far distances and, and maintain a probe for a long period of time. But for human beings, it remains chemical propulsion in, across all the vehicles. Of all the movies that you've seen that are related to space, <laughs> which one do you think is the most accurate? I would, if I could mix two of them, well, three maybe. Apollo 13, I think, is the most accurate in terms of the way NASA operates and the way astronauts operate. Even having said that, I, I suspect there's a little bit of Hollywood in terms of the interactions of the astronauts. You've you got to have the big dramatic moment. I don't know that that ever happened. I suspect it did not, but who knows? As an indication of how much engineers at NASA, how much they respected the movie Apollo 13, they actually made a list of all the mistakes they made. They actually had a list and it was not infinite. And there were little things uh, in there. So that was kind of fascinating. But I, I love that movie. From an emotional standpoint, I would say gravity is, is from a physics standpoint, gravity is, is kind of ridiculous. But from an emotional standpoint, I, I love the uh, emotional arc that the main character goes through. And uh, while I don't think astronauts act or react in that way at all, still, the emotional arc is, is fairly true. And for me, in terms of the wonder of space flight, now this is through the eyes of an eight-year-old child, but the movie Kubrick's 2001, the wonder of it, and what I felt when I saw that movie, which kind of got me onto the whole idea of, wow, space is really amazing. I'm scared to death of it, but boy, it's cool. And reading more about it, learning more about it, that movie got me started. And then what's some of the coolest pieces of technology or the coolest piece of technology that you've got to encounter in your time as an astronaut? Oh, probably, I'd have to say the Dragon spacecraft is the coolest piece of technology. Right next to that is the Soyuz. They're accomplishing, both accomplishing amazing things in slightly different ways. And maybe because the Dragon was newer, I, I tend to, uh, to gravitate towards that. Now, the, uh, the spacesuit itself is remarkable. It's old. We uh, probably need to develop a new suite or fleet of spacesuits. But that entire life support system that's packed in the back of a backpack, that is a wonder of engineering. If the shuttle were still around, I think it'd be pretty clear it's the space shuttle. That's still a remarkable engineering achievement with the, uh, the payload capacity. How much it could lift is, has never been, never been uh, surpassed with those uh, liquid oxygen and hydrogen um, engines. But the SpaceX Dragon was, was great. Um, in particular, through the flight phases, just how smooth and exact each of the staging uh, areas were. You know, it's only eight and a half minutes to get to station or to get to orbit from when you launch. But boy, those were beautiful eight and a half minutes. And then on the way home from the time they burned to bring you home, that was the most exciting part of, of any dynamic phase of spaceflight, you know, launch or, or reentry uh, for any of the vehicles that I've had because it was enormous amount of fun. It was violent exactly where it's supposed to be when the chutes open. Uh, you could hear yourself coming through the atmosphere. You not only see the, the plasma coming through these big windows. In fact, they could have pretty big windows so you could see what's going on. is remarkable. This pink glow as you're coming back through the atmosphere, but then the rush of the atmosphere. And you could hear it. You could just hear the screaming sound as you're coming back in like you're in inside of a 747 engine. 
even or being encircled by one um, as you're you're still coming down at high Mach speed through the atmosphere before your drogue shoots open. So um, the combination of what the Dragon allowed you to experience, but at the same time, uh, the better technology on the inside of the cabin was really, really fantastic. Did Elon come and shake your hand and talk to you guys before you went up? Nope. 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 Did not. I've met him before. He came and talked to the astronaut office. I think he did meet the uh, first crew, maybe another crew, the first crew to fly in, in the Dragon. Um, but busy guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I like his design stuff. I think across all his brands, one of the things I'm the biggest fan of is design. Things usually look pretty cool coming out of there. So I, I saw some like mock-ups for a future space suit or something of that nature, and I was like, that looks cool. Yeah. Their space suits were, were cool. As far as like small portable electronics that you're using, what I'm getting at is I got to have on Douglas Terrier a few years ago, who was at the time the CTO of the Chief Technical Officer of NASA. And he shared with me that several of our inventions have come from trying to achieve greater competency in space, right? Like power tools and some other things. And right. so since then, I haven't talked to anyone else from NASA. I was just curious, like any interesting tools that you're using that are small electronics inside of the space station? NASA has gone back to, I think you're right, it gave to the industry the uh, acceleration and leap into the future, really, when it came to miniaturization. And so NASA uses some of those products back up on the space station again. So nothing uh, specifically derived by NASA. Uh, for that. You know, I, I can't help but just mention some of the other things that have come out of the space program since you mentioned it anyway. Uh, CT scans. That mathematics behind that came from the lunar mapping, radar mapping from the lunar module. AEDs, by the way, rechargeable batteries. That started with NASA. NASA needed those. But up on the space station, we've, we've been doing some virtual reality work up there, uh, some holographic work trying to expand our ability to not have to rely on mission control for AI to actually teach us while we're looking through a lens in, or, or maybe even a screen while something is projected on the screen or on our retinas to help us do a lot of procedures. It's, it's fairly complex. You, you have smart, uh, curious people, but you don't have nearly enough time to train them to do everything they've got to do. So you've got to provide the right kind of procedure at the right time and in the right, right way to make them effective and, and pulling off some pretty aggressive and audacious experiments. So that that kind of technology I find very fascinating and an enormous amount of fun to work with. Still in its nation stages, but still uh, exciting. We had a couple of um, free-floating AIs with us, one from the European Space Agency, one from uh, MIT. And so these free-floating modules that are just kind of you're using fans or little CO2 cartridges to move around and ultimately to be able to just float behind you and shine a light or a camera on your work, answer questions, go find something for you, provide a tool or something like that. Uh, that, again, is in its beginning stages, but that's a lot of fun to work with those as well. Oh, man, I can I can imagine what that's going to be like in a few years when it gets really smooth. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's funny because you go, well, this is not a humanoid. It's not like I've got a person with me, but inevitably we start talking to them. And it's, it's as a joke, but still it's fun to actually talk to them. <laughs> as we wrap up, what would you say to kids or the next generation of people that are interested in becoming an astronaut? Oh, if you want to become an astronaut, start being one today. I don't care how old you were. You know, I, when I was in uh, elementary school or, or high school, I was just like you. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I loved this idea of being an astronaut. And so 
I've read the bios, the biographies of astronauts, and I tried to copy them. And you can start doing that right now because the training really does start wherever you are right now. Do the best you can in school. If you have problems with it, no problem. Just keep on learning from that and get better and better. You, it's NASA cares that you have learned how to learn. And so uh, keep on working on it. Take care of your body because you got to be healthy to fly in space, at least as a, as a NASA astronaut. And stay curious. Put yourself in situations where your decisions matter. As we were talking about before, you've, you've got to kind of uh, stress yourself a little bit uh, and kind of get out of your comfort zone a little bit every now and then to, uh, to get better. And so if you can do all those things, you can start doing all those things, you know, starting elementary high school. Even then you are training to be an astronaut. You're doing exactly what you need to be. So uh, and, and be persistent. Nobody got to this job by taking the easy road or by saying, oh, I think I'll be an astronaut, put an application, suddenly they become one. They were, everybody's very persistent and works hard to get here. But it's an enormous amount of fun. It's worth it. Just the road to get here is worth it. it uh, it's not just about <clears throat> getting to fly in space. It's getting to work with people and, and the whole path to get here was wonderful. So highly recommend it. Excellent. Man, that's all I've got for you, man. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Oh, I feel great. I'm glad. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.